This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with journalist and filmmaker Carl Malakunas. Carl joined me for an in-depth conversation about the volunteer environmental defenders risking their lives on the island of Palawan in the Philippines. They do so to save some of the most biodiverse forests and oceans in the world from illegal logging and fishing. The story of these brave people of Palawan is featured in Carl's award-winning documentary, Delicado, which we discuss in detail. A recent Global Witness 10-year investigation into land defenders around the world reveals that the Philippines is the deadliest country in Asia to be an environmental defender, ranking alongside Brazil, Colombia, Mexico and Honduras as the most dangerous nations in the world. For information about future screenings, head to delicadofilm.com. And it is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto this program filmmaker and journalist Carl Malakunas. Carl is the writer, producer and director of a documentary film called Delicado. It was recently screened as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. It's also been screened across the world and is still being screened at the moment across the world. It's so vital, I think, this topic and this subject. It's something which evokes a lot of emotion, I know, for myself, having just watched it, but also for those who will have already watched it and no doubt even for Carl who was making it. So we're going to be talking about the environmental land defenders on the island of Palawan in the Philippines, where they're protecting some of the most beautifully diverse and old rainforests in the world, as well as, of course, the seas, the oceans and the fish that make up that beautiful island. Obviously, it's under threat from illegal logging, illegal fishing and other types of extractive mining activity. So without further ado, I welcome Carl onto the program to discuss this fascinating documentary with us, Delicado. Hi there, Carl, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Amy. It's it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's really, really wonderful to chat with you. And when I watched the trailer, I've got to say I was gripped straight away and thought, oh my gosh, I have to watch this movie because it seemed like a thriller the way that these instances occur where these land defenders, volunteers essentially, seem to be going out into the forest, the rainforest in Palawan in the Philippines to seize uh, chainsaws to literally stop illegal logging in their tracks and and it seems like such a dangerous activity to be involved in and as the documentary very much shows it truly is very dangerous and that's the really the title of this film so I wonder could you just tell us a little bit about how you came across this subject matter yourself and the island of Palawan Sure, Amy. Well, I'm a journalist by, by trade and uh, in my day job, I'm still a journalist. Uh, I work for the French news agency Agence France Press. Um, back in 2011, I was the Manila Bureau Chief for AFP and uh, I ended up living in the Philippines for almost eight years as Manila Bureau Chief. And uh, back then I wanted to uh, go down and do a story on ecotourism uh, in Palawan. It was really uh, an excuse to go down and see this incredible place. Palawan is the, is, it's called the last frontier. Uh, it's home to the last great rainforest. It's um, you know one of the most 
the most biodiverse uh, waters in the world. They call it the Amazon of the seas, the limestone cliffs and the, the blue clear waters. They, they're backdrops for Hollywood movies. I think one of the Born Identity films uh, ended in uh, in Palawa. So it's an incredibly beautiful place. I was going to go down there and, and just do a pretty innocuous story on ecotourism. And the environmental campaigner uh, who I was uh, in contact with was shot in the head and killed um, a few days before I was about to go down. Uh, so I went down to investigate his murder instead. And while I was there, I met a whole group of environmental defenders putting their lives on the line. Um, as, as you said in your introduction, uh, what, how, what? There are these people going into the forest um, barefoot, trying to trying to take chainsaws from illegal loggers. Who are they? What are they doing? That was my immediate reaction. I ended up doing a, a piece of journalism for um, for AFP um, on on that a, a decade ago. Um, always had in my mind, it, you know, it just seems like it's it, you know, there's something more in it. Um, as a journalist, um, I've, I've been. Uh, involved in daily journalism in, in one form or another, immediate news, uh, since I was a 17-year-old copy boy at the Herald Sun newspaper <laughs> in Melbourne. And um, I'd always uh, dreamt of wanting to do something uh, a bit more enduring, a bit more impactful uh, than, than daily journalism. And that's how the journey began. Uh, I really didn't expect that, you know, 10 years later, I would have, I would have made a full documentary and, uh, and we'll be here today. Yeah, well, it sounded like such a, a long commitment, you know, a labour of true passion because, as you say, you found out about this in 2011 and I believe you started filming in 2017 and then, you know, you were going back and continuing to film for a number of years. That really does take a, a huge span across your lifetime. You know, this is something that some people do dedicate their lives to certain projects, but that is a, a really substantial one. So you must have felt very strongly about this topic being so, you know, not only just newsworthy, but genuinely you had something to offer, to share, to try and, I guess, shine a light on this issue. And I wonder, you know, what were your reflections when you were deciding to take on a project like this? I guess for myself, I've been driven through journalism one way or another to try and tell these stories. This is a, a longer version of, of, I guess, what I've tried to dedicate my, my life to. I've been sort of doing sort of conflict reporting and and um, you know, various forms of sort of in-depth environmental reporting uh, over the years and a lot of, I guess, human rights reporting. Um, and this and has sort of been the culmination of all that. Yeah, so I've, I've certainly had my my, my heart in particularly environment and, and climate reporting. And so I guess, as I said, I always wanted to feel like I could do a bit more, have a bit more of an impact. And then as a journalist um, and as a storyteller, when I met these incredible people and not just what they did, but the the, 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 the characters, how you know, they're just how strong and brave and courageous they were. I knew there was something more that, um, that could be told in a in a, in a longer uh, version of a, uh, of a of essentially a piece of journalism, um, and so that's why I, I kept committing to it. The characters in this film are so engaging. So I don't know. There's something very compelling about how they communicate their passion and their feeling for the earth and for the environment, and it really does shine through. You interview um, people who are truly connected to the land, as they say, you know, that they 
they are kind of just interconnected with the land, their feelings are with the earth. You know, there's some really beautiful reflections on the connection that Indigenous peoples in the Philippines have with the land. And I wondered, was that something that really shone through to you in your interactions with attorney Bobby Chan and also with Tata and Nieves, like, you know, what were the kind of things that really struck you about the way that they were speaking about their island of Palawan, but also that kind of deeper connection to the earth that they had? I guess one of the things that most immediately comes to mind is Cap Ruben Azaga, um, who was the environmental defender um, who was murdered uh, during the course of our, our filming. And on my first uh, filming trip there, I, I met Cap and we and we slept in the forest together. And you know we we talked about why he was doing this. And you know he um, he looked up at these big trees and he said. You know, if if I don't work to save them, they're just not going to be here for when my daughters grow up and have children of their own. And if they're not here, they won't have the watersheds. They won't have the um, the protection against the typhoons, against the storms. It was a matter of survival for him and a matter of survival for 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 his community. And I felt that really, really strongly in very in in various ways. Um, it's it's not a, you know, environmental activism where you know I guess mm. you know someone like more myself would be thinking oh, I'm going to go and try and do something you know to save the environment because I want to I want to be good. This is just so visceral. It's so you know it's it's so immediate. It's just a, a real matter of survival for 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 the people of Palawan. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I really, I really felt that in sort of in in, in every way. Tata is the other, um, you know, one of the the, you know, the other leaders of the Parrot Forces, you know, and, and and he's again, he just feels, you know, he talks about his granddaughter, and you know, he, and we spent a lot of time with him and his granddaughter, and he's he he knows that if if he doesn't do his work, it's all just going to be gone for his eight or nine year old granddaughter. Yeah, it does sound like it's so existential, this issue. And one of the other ways that it's brought home is um, your interview with Remedios Cabral. You know, she was reflecting on the transformation of Palawan as becoming this tourist destination, a place where, you know, business people were trying to invest their money, infrastructure being developed in the mountains, you know, those roadways are becoming more prolific. And she was saying essentially that she'd been told by a man called the father of the province that because she wouldn't sell land to these specific people, they apparently said to her, the father will have you killed if you don't sell this. And she says, I will fight for the land because it has belonged to my ancestors for thousands of years. And the way that we feel for the land is different. Our feelings are fused with the earth. The earth is like our parent. The forest is the lifeblood of the Indigenous people. And that is another example that kind of brought it home to me. There is this very strong conflict between those who want to protect their home or need to protect their home and the others who are seeking to transform Palawan into something far more commercial and larger than it currently is. And I wondered, could you explore that a little bit more for us and explain the context, the political context of the situation for the people of Palawan? So that incredible person that, that you just quoted, Mimi Cabral, is uh, an Indigenous leader um, you know, from the Tagbanoa community 
in and around El Nido, which is the main tourist town of, of, of Palawan. Um, it's a gold mine for, for, for tourism development. And um, the indigenous communities are losing their land, um, whether it's through force or through, you know, through sales um, from a very powerful interest, having the ability to be able to, to buy the lands from Indigenous people uh, at very cheap prices in whatever way uh, the Indigenous people are losing their land for development. And they're essentially facing a, a losing battle. Um, you know, in, in Palawan, they are, Palawan has sort of been 20, 30 years behind the development of the rest of the country, you know, in some ways and for various reasons. You know, part of it is because of its geographical remoteness. Um, and you can see what's happened in throughout, you know, Mindanao, southern Philippines and, you know, up in the Cordilleras, the mountain ranges of the northern Philippines where development has, has come. And Amimi Cabral and her community are sort of on the, the, the last line of, of defence of the last great rainforest of, of, of the Philippines. So, um, you know, in the preceding scene, there's um, Bobby Chan, the environmental lawyer, is, um, is speaking to a whole group of Indigenous uh, people. And uh, another lady stands up and says to, says to Bobby, you know, I've, um, you know someone's come and, and offered to buy my land. Um, is it, you know, they, they tell me it's for tourism or, or it's for coconuts. Um, I'm not really sure. What do I do? And to me, that was a really sort of powerful moment in terms of the, you know, the power imbalance, you know, the, um, within this uh, community. You almost got the sense that without Bobby's guidance or, you know, and others may have just ended up selling their land to powerful people who have come, whether it's through the offer of, mo or of money or, as Mimi says in the film, you know, through threats and intimidation. So you just wonder how much of it's going on. Um, and so... We present the um, the governor um, of the of the province, you know, on the on on the flip side there, who at one point was the richest elected politician in the Philippines, not just um, on a uh, provincial level but on a national level. Incredibly rich, powerful um, businessman. He initially um, made his money when logging was legal in the Philippines. He had the sole logging concession um, across Palawan in the 1980s under the, under the then dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. He's gone on to have logging concessions throughout Southeast Asia and involved in, in many other industries. Uh, we asked for interviews with the governor um, and he, he declined. But we endeavoured to show his side of the story, and you know, in, in an interview with with a, another with a local media outlet, he talks about his vision of development um, and his vision for Palawan, and he's talking about the roads that he can build, and you know how he doesn't want Palawan to sit idle; he wants it to to be part of the greater Philippine economy, and that's the that's the battle that's going on, um, you know, in, in Palawan, and whether it's for tourism whether it's for the, the uh, mining industry or whether it's for, plant, for plantations. Uh, development is happening at a very fast pace now. Yeah, when he compared it to the Hawaii of the United States, making it a similar kind of tourist destination, that, that really hit me because obviously that is a, a very scary thought, um, especially given how beautifully pristine it, it looks in the film, apart from all the logging uh, that's been going on. If we talk about Governor Alvarez for just one moment, 
I know that he had to finish up his terms as governor because he'd exhausted, it seems, the number of terms he was allowed to to run for, but he was going to run for the second district of Palawan in May this year, and I believe he was elected to that position. That's right. So the uh, the requirements there are uh, constitutional term limits. So he could serve three three year terms as governor. He was so he was required by the constitution to uh, to step aside. Uh, so he uh, so he instead uh, jumped over to uh, to go into the national congress to represent you know the the, the southern district of Palawan. Uh, still um, a very you know. Hold, holding the reins of power to 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 to, to a large extent in in Palawan. Right. It was really interesting to look at how things are developing even now politically um, in Palawan, but the Philippines more broadly. We might just address that towards the end of the chat. But let's go back to um, the main characters. Something that comes through is um, Attorney Bobby Chan having this very strong connection to religion and spirituality and how that influences his way of seeing the world, but also especially his mission and his team's mission. And what is so lovely is, you know, how he talks about how they have like no funding and it's probably better I don't have much funding at all. Um, He just seems to have such a wonderful personality, as does Tatar and all the others that you've just discussed. And I don't know, I wanted to understand from you, starting to, as a filmmaker, embed yourself in this group and to get to know the different people in the team. My understanding is that you did very much go out into the forest with that team. You know, when we're looking at some of the filming techniques, I was trying to figure out what you'd done. And I don't know, it kind of looked like there was a camera on a helmet sometimes. And, you know, so there was a little bit of shaky cam and, you know, but there's also some beautiful kind of drone shots going on across the forest. And I wondered if you could talk with us about some of the practicalities of filming this film, but also, of course, what seems to be such a beautiful group, a, a beautiful bond that the men had together uh, when they're out into the forest? So the, the bonds that they have is one of the, um, was one of the intangibles, I think, of, of what drives them. You know, they can talk about, you know, environmentalism and, and doing things for, 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 their, for, their, for their families and the future generations. They're a very tight knit bunch of, 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 of guys as well, and and the the, um, the the bond that they have when they're out there, and the sense of adventure that they have, uh, they do love being together out there as well. Um, and um, so, but to I guess take you back to to Bobby and and how all that sort of came about, and sort of relationships with with Bobby and you know how that went on to filming. So. You know, I sort of met Bobby in 2011 when I was investigating this story, and um, and then I went back a few years later again and met him again, and you know, we we and we I did another piece of journalism, and then when I when it went back in 2017, I was you know I was uh, you know I was sitting with him on a Friday night, I'd taken a sort of a week of holidays from from work, and he says, "All right, well, if you really want to do this." Get out now! Uh, the boys are going to get up into the into the forest tonight. I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> but we ate some shellfish in the in, in their office, and I uh, said, "Okay, get get into the van." And so, you know, jumped into the van with uh, with this man who I would who would then learn was Tata and Cap Rubin, um, and uh, and others, and drove off into the night. And we didn't I didn't really know what was going on. And uh, then um, you know we slept on we slept in a in a village. No, for a couple of hours, and then 
I found myself hiking into the forest and then they were then they were sleeping in the forest and um, and you could sense this sort of sense of camaraderie amongst them and you know, I, I don't speak Tagalog very much and they didn't speak very much English but they were looking after me they were they were they were uh, caring for me and Tata this guy in the front was just doing these hand signals and he was sort of you know like you could just sense that you know, he was you know uh, you know leading this group and you could sense this was a man you could have confidence in and so we hiked for a couple of days in the forest and I grew to know these guys really really well and that was just a and a wonderful thing for me I, I you know it was one of the most special things you know being with these being with these guys and so we emerged out of the out of the forest and you know filmed a chainsaw confiscation and came back down to to you know office to the office where Bobby was and Bobby said, well, you know, um, he was elated that someone had filmed a chainsaw confiscation. And he said, and he said that, uh, you, know, you know, journalists have been coming around here for 10 years and they always come and they're always interested. No one's ever gone into the forest with, 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 with my boys. And from then on, there was this sort of this, uh, this, this bond between us as well. And I guess that's how the sort of the relationship began, you know, with Bobby and Tata and the rest of them. And so, yes, so then that went on to develop into spending months in the forest uh, over a number of years. Um, and that was uh, going to the second part of your question, sort of how do we do it? It was, we worked out pretty quickly. It really, we had to be very light on the ground. Um, so for the vast bulk of the filming, um, it was myself and Tom Bannigan, a cinematographer from Sydney, who I knew from sort of journalism days. Um, we, were, we were working in China together uh, many years ago. Tom's a war correspondent, tough as nails. Um, I just knew that, you know, who was I going to be able to bring into the forest who, who would be able to hack it with these guys? And that was Tom. So Tom and I just spent a long time in the forest with, with them. Um, and... You know, we slept with them, we ate with them, um, and so that's how we sort of just had two cameras, and then we also had some GoPros on the on the guys as well, and so that's why you got that mix between uh, sort of this uh, incredibly well shot footage and um, and the, the hard reality of the of the GoPros, and then we managed to be able to film this beautiful drone footage um, because. We couldn't stop to take, put, obviously put the drone up when they're going out on these missions to try and catch these illegal loggers. But quite often these missions, well, most of the time actually, these missions don't end up in a confiscation. They hike for a couple of days and the, uh, you know, it starts to rain and the loggers go down the hill or the, the assets just get the information wrong um, or the, there's been information reported to the loggers and, you know, that, you know, that these guys are, are coming into the forest and they go... So anyway, so once we've once they determined that you know the loggers weren't there and there was no longer a security threat, we were able to bring the the drone up and and shoot these incredible areas. So there was we we got positives out of the I guess the so-called failures of of those confiscation missions. It's so wonderful. I love the mixture of those camera techniques because you get everything. You get the immediacy of the situation. But also that really striking, because of the drone footage, you get a real sense of the devastation of some of that logging as well. And I just think it's the, that's probably the only way you can see it. But also I just remember one of those panning shots where you're panning up to this just giant tree that's just so huge. And I don't know, it just kind of gives you this overwhelming sense of awe and respect for what they're protecting. So, yeah, I really, I really appreciated that. I wanted to talk a little bit more and tease out a little bit more some of those missions just because I think for those listening who may not have yet seen the film, they might think, well, what are the dangers of 
trying to stop this? You know, because we in Australia, you might see protesters in a tree sit in a native forest, but there isn't the same level of danger as if you were doing this in Palawan. And one of the scenes you see, you know, three men with guns, potentially even knives, it's kind of hard to see from afar. And this group of defenders eventually go to their shack once they've left and, you know, they're looking through the shack and then they're kind of finding someone who they can confiscate a chainsaw from. And what really struck me was the way that Tata engaged with the people who were actually blogging, the way that he was so, I don't know, reassuring and diplomatic and understanding when they weren't putting up a fight, when they were complying and and also the way he was understanding that a lot of people are motivated by poverty and that's the reason why they're engaging in these kind of activities and I guess following the lead of kind of higher up people. And I wondered if you could reflect on that a little bit given obviously you had such intimate knowledge of Tatar and the way that he interacts with those subjects. You know, it just comes across as, I don't know, he's just got some very special power, some very um, special way of putting everyone at ease, including the people that they're, you know, trying to stop. Yeah, absolutely. That was, uh, I'm glad that that's, uh, that that's come out because that was one of the most incredible parts of it. You know, his empathy for the people that he was confronting, um, and not just Tata, but all the others um, have, have, have this empathy. Um, and that's partly, largely, because they are from those communities themselves. Um, in that final scene, you see the, um, the illegal logger sitting on the tree that's just been cut down and being surrounded by Tata and the, and, and the boys, and Tata's foot's on the, on the, on the log, and it's in a flip-flop, and the logger's foot is on the log, log and it's on a flip-flop. You can see both their feet, you can see their toes, you can see how they've been walking barefoot in flip-flops through the mountains, both of them, you know, all their lives. And, you know, they're, 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 they're both the men of the earth, um, and they're both come from very poor backgrounds. So his empathy for them all was 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 really really powerful. It, the way that he interacted as well was also an important survival technique uh, that they have. When they go in, their their first instinct or their first action is to try and defuse the conflict, to defuse the situation. Um, another time you see Tata make a joke with one of the illegal fishermen, and it's that was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, just after he makes a joke, you can see him look over his shoulder, and his eyes are just still just, just scanning to see what threats are around him. Mm. So what they do is they try and defuse the situation, defuse the conflict, and then sort of going back into both empathy and survival, they're not mutually exclusive. One of the things is they don't, um, you know, Tata and, and Bobby don't press charges against the actual illegal loggers or the illegal fishermen. They confiscate the equipment. And then, you know, if there are going to be further, you know, legal actions, it's against the, the you know, the high, the highers up um, that, that they go for. So they don't try and punish these uh, illegal loggers. Uh, they understand who they are and where they're coming from. 
and that's also, I think, part of how they can, you know, that they still have the support. They're almost like Robin Hoods of the, of, of of their communities. That they still have the support of, of of the people that they're going into. It's the it's the you know the the village captains. It's the businessmen that that are the trouble. And then in, in in regards to the dangers, well, you saw, like I said, Cap Rubin, who we were with, was shot and, and was shot and killed um, on another confiscation a couple of months later in the exact same area. He was going in, and and the two loggers just and they shot him. But one of the other dangers, you know, they've had you know, uh, 13 of the parent forces have been killed um, over the years. And uh, they're not always or even necessarily mostly killed in the forest. It's afterwards uh, when these loggers go back out of the, the forest and they go back to the boss and, hey, boss, you know, um, sorry, I've uh, got to report our chainsaws uh, being confiscated. By who? Well, these guys, it's because Tata and the boys leave a seizure receipt, and they say, "Oh, it's it's the PNNI, it's this guy, it's you know, it's Tata, whoever." And so then these businessmen target the parent forces within their communities, and I think that's an even even much it's a much greater threat. And it, when you when you know that it's not just the immediate threat of being in the forest, but they have to live with this threat day after day, year after year now that they could get killed at any time. That's when you start to really appreciate their courage. Totally. And something that Bobby said, you know, he he echoes this a lot throughout the film is, you know, why are we doing this? Because no one else will. You know, we're doing the job that the government won't do. It's really so shocking. And I guess one of the scenes in the film that really got me was towards the end when they were thinking about, well, where do we go next? What Where do we focus our energy? Because obviously I'm sure there's so many different missions they could choose. There was this reflection by Tata saying, since Cap died, they've had the upper hand. Rumours go around that we seem to be afraid to go back there. And they say, if we try to return, we'll lose another comrade. No one enters that area anymore, not the environmental department, not even the police. When we enter this area, it's now marked as their territory. We'll be trespassing when we enter their area. And um, he says, for me, my final thought is he was killed there. If we can avenge him, we should, but we need to be 100% prepared. There was just this kind of moment of, I understand now why they're doing what they're doing. It's not just like it's for the earth, but it's for their mates. There's so much caught up in their motives, you know, as to why they're doing what they're doing, what missions they're choosing and, and like how much personal feeling is involved but also how much strategy, as you say, like they're very prepared, then calculated, they're not going to go in and, and do the wrong thing and put themselves at risk. But I don't know, I just wondered if you could reflect on that scene when you were filming it. Did it have anything for you? Did that spark, you know, any certain kind of response for you? Because I don't know, there was just something in that when I was watching it, that it just felt like this very galvanizing moment of we're going to do this, and we're going to go back to the place where our close friend has been killed. I feel sort of emotional just listening to to, to that again, and um, their say their their courage is I, I can't comprehend it, and I would say that as powerful and as inspiring as um, that little scene was, they do that almost every day. They went there up to where Cap Rubin was murdered into into those forests. You know, there was twelve other times that they were doing something similar. You know, down in Bataraza in southern Philippines, where 
uh, you know, there's um, so a lot of the um, uh, Islamic militants uh, from, you know, southern Philippines um, uh, are embedded in, in, in those communities. Um, there have been people who have, you know, Westerners who have been kidnapped and, and killed in, in that vicinity. Uh, it's just lawless. Um, two of their men were shot and killed on a motorbike, you know, as, as, as I said before, they were marked after to, to stop logging in that community. They go back down there regularly to to do confiscation missions. Mm. Um, regularly, it's it's just incredible. And you know, when then when I talk about Nunez Rosento, the the mayor of 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 uh, El Nido, who's our our sort of third main participant in 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 the film, and she is placed on the the drug list of President Duterte. You know, thousands of people have been murdered under Duterte's drug war. The president goes on national TV and curses her and threatens to kill her and says, you know, I will kill you. Um, and because she is fighting her environmental battle in a different but equally courageous way to the guys. Mm. Um, she's trying to stop the, those developers that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, when she's threatened, when she's placed on the narco list and the, and the president threatens to kill her, I would have walked away. I would have given up, um, you know, if you know, Tata and the boys are going, you know, in to avenge their, you know, their mate's death, I would have given up. And I think most of us would have. And I still struggle to understand how just brave and courageous these people are. I'm so glad you brought up Nieves because that's where I was going to go next because she's so inspiring. The way that she speaks in those community meetings is so galvanizing. I can see why she's such a great politician. You know, she's just so oh, passionate. I don't know, just genuine, a truly authentic person. And um, yet, when you see that Duterte footage and her kind of responding and then praying with her family, I mean, that is literally when I would have just said, okay, yeah, we're done. <laughs> like, I, I agree with you. And she's just going, no, we'll stay strong and we'll stay the course. And she's basically in this uh, election campaign, as we see in the film. So she's quite literally campaigning and, as you show, being followed by police. And, you know, there's a lot of intimidation and threats against her, as you show as well. There are so many parts or challenges to her story, one clearly being the lack of fair elections in the sense that there are allegations of vote buying and that being the reason why she wasn't re-elected as mayor and no doubt it would have been so heartbreaking as we see to face up to that, these kind of strategies where different candidates are potentially backed by commercial interests and have that funding and resourcing that, you know, local grassroots campaigners don't have. But also, you know, her resilience. I, I don't know. I wondered if you could reflect on the ways that she has continued to be inspiring because she still wants to be, as she said, governor of Palawan and the first woman governor as well. You know, it's so exciting to see her speak. And uh, yeah, I just wondered if you could reflect on her journey, not just in the film, but even after, you know, and what she's still doing right now. So we met Nieves at Cap Rubin's funeral. So uh, I, we were, there was a basketball court She's standing next to Cap's body at the wake, and you know everyone sort of, you know, hypnotised by the speech of some very, very charismatic, powerful woman. I thought, Who, who's that? And then, um, you know, a few hours later, um, we're at the 
at the cemetery and they're bearing cap and Nieves is standing around guiding, managing the funeral and looking after Cap's daughters and there were tears running down her eyes and she was so, I mean, knew she was a politician, but right now you knew that she was uh, uh, someone grieving for, for someone she cared very much about as well. And it turns out that her and Cap had a long relationship of, uh, of defending the environment together, though they've been friends for a long time. And so then when, you know, um, I just wanted to get to know her more and sat down, had an interview with her and you know, she says, oh, you know, I'm on the, I've been told I've been on the drugs list. Oh, I've been told on Duterte's drugs list. And, you know, for people who don't know, thousands of people have been murdered uh, under Duterte's drug war. Uh, the you know, International Criminal you know, uh, Court is investigating Duterte uh, for what could be crimes against humanity. There were other mayors who were placed on Duterte's drug list, who we show in the film, were shot and killed. So then Nevis talks about this and she goes, yeah, so, okay, so, you know, we're having this for the first interview and so well, what are you doing about it? And it was all about how she was just going to continue fighting to protect the environment. And, you know, there were these illegal loggers, there's these developers who are bringing the, the illegal logs into, you know, into these resorts and I need to stop them. So, yeah, but what about the drug list? Oh, you yeah, know, I'll, I'll work on that as well. It just, it was just incredible. And then over a couple of years of filming, uh, Nieves, it was always in the shadows. Nieves was saying, you know, well, you know, I've been told I'm on the drug list, you know, I will, you know, but there was nothing official, of course. And this is where there's, there's just no sense of justice. And then as mayor of El Nido, uh, she was told she lost her police powers because of the uh, because she was placed on the drug list, and so she's shown me a document that says uh, she's lost her police powers. And as a documentary maker, I'm thinking, okay, this is strong, but how do I actually show that she's on the drug list? And then just before the the May 2019 elections, Duterte gets up on TV and names her, and this was all part of the campaign for you know, the the president and his allies to influence the elections. Uh, it was no coincidence at all that these that these politicians were named just ahead of the elections, and so you know, you know spoiler alert, she loses the, that that election, and you know, as you said, she vows at the end that she's going to come back, that she's going to be um, governor, the first uh, lady governor of Palawan. Well, three years later, at these last elections um, in May of uh, this year, Nieves did uh, come back into the political arena. Um, she sort of lay low for three years, and uh, she didn't run again for, for the mayor of El Nido. Uh, she didn't go for the governor's position. She went for something in between. Um, it's on the, called the, on the Palawan board um, and she got elected. Oh, wonderful. She's the only sort of environmental candidate, you know, politician, pro-environment you know, uh, person on the board um, and it's for the whole province. Um, and so she is now trying to work to have a People's Consultative Council um, uh, made up of civil society groups um, and environmental groups who actually work with the government, local governments to hold them accountable. Um, there's been a model in place by a progressive politician in the Philippines that she's trying to uh, trying to follow. So she's trying to build this grassroots, you know, uh, you know, community back up again. And so she's still there. She's still fighting. And we had this... Um, uh, we just had our Philippine premiere in Manila recently uh, at Cinema Laya. We were the closing festival at, at Cinema Laya and um, we brought up uh, Nieves and, and Tatar and the Parent Forces up to, up to uh, Manila. And um, it was uh, at this, um, uh, this cultural centre of the Philippines, which seats 1,800 people. And 
you know, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen, you know, how many people were going to turn. It was a full house. Wow. And then they watched the people watched the film. And then Nieves' name was called out and Bobby's name was called out and Tata and Nene Cabral, the Indigenous leader, were called out and they all walked on stage and there wasn't a dry eye mm. in, the, in, 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 in the audience um, and everyone was standing up and clapping and cheering and um, it was this amazing moment and Nieves sort of st- you know, gets up on stage and there's a little tear in her eye and then she just raises her fist, uh, her fist up in the air to the crowd and they all roar. And it was just the most incredible electric moment. And it, it made this 10 years of work worth it. It was just incredible. Oh, I'm so glad. It sounds like a rock star reception for people who truly are even better than rock stars. I'm so glad you talk about the reception too, because I wanted to reflect on that a little bit. And that's probably the best place is, you know, Manila and the Philippines being a very important audience for this film to be seen, certainly more broadly across the whole country, because it is quite a large, expansive country and population. But I, I wondered, how have different audiences been receiving this film you know, not just in the Philippines, of course, but of obviously Australia, New Zealand, you're taking it across to Europe and the US. Like how has this film been received? How have you been received, you know, your work at the moment? And obviously for me, I was, you know, crying <laughs> in the film and I defy anyone to not cry during this film because it is very personally affecting but obviously there's a broader movement here there's a broader point to this which is to you know shine a light at an investigative journalist's kind of light on this issue so yeah could you share with us some of your observations of the responses you've seen to this documentary Amy I'm, I'm a first-time filmmaker um, you know for for nine and a bit years I was making this film not knowing whether it would work whether it would be a success um i'm just overwhelmed with what's happened um over the past sort of you know six months to a year we had our we had a global premiere at a major film festival in canada at hot docs and then we were we screened in sort of you know in la and new york in a human rights uh, festival and we're at, we're at the Sydney Film Festival. We won Sustainable Future Award, uh, one of the major awards there for for films that, you know, that was doing something about the climate emergency. Um, you know, to have a, a full house at Melbourne, my at the Melbourne International Film Festival, my my, my hometown, it was it's it was incredible. Um, and then I, I guess I've talked about Manila, but that was the most magical moment. Yeah. It was just, um, and to see, not, not just because of, of that people were, were loving the film, but because of how emotionally they invested that they were in it. And, um, you know, and I've never wanted to make the film just to make a, a film. Um, it was always from day one, it was um, to tell a, a bigger story about the environment. I knew um, as, as a journalist, I'd done a lot of reporting that about, you know, land defenders um, who are, being killed in record numbers around the world. And whether it's uh, the Philippines or the Palawan, um, what's going on there, you know, with Bobby and Tata and Nieves, they're the same stories um, that are occurring in Brazil or Colombia or Honduras or Mexico. And and I wanted to, I was hoping that this film could maybe be a part of, uh, of, uh, of, of some sort of narrative to help uh, sort of not just 
raise awareness about what was happening in Palawan, but about land defenders around the world. And you know, we're building a, an impact campaign for the film um, around defending the defenders uh, to help uh, you know, uh, support and drive support for land defenders and the forests that they protect. Um, and you know, as part of that, you know, you know, from Manila, you know, we've started to get support for screenings around the Philippines, and we've just started screenings. You know, there was one in the central Philippines for a community that were um, defending their mangroves um, from development, and the film got show to them, and they said, "Wow, other people are fighting these battles as well." And you know, so that's part of the impact campaign. We're trying to um, also get into schools and universities and you know then we're also looking at different things on policy levels and and for funding for actually forest rangers so you know we can hopefully put our guys out of it out of their volunteer jobs and get you know the people mm. who are supposed to be doing it doing it so there's lots of impact that we're trying to build in the philippines um, there's a big anti-corruption conference in Washington later in the year, which the film will, will be at, you know, potentially at the uh, UN Biodiversity um, Summit in, in Montreal later in the year. There, you know, so our film's going to be part of all this conversation. And um, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be screening the cross homes across America on PBS. Oh, congrats. Yeah, we're on, we're on POV and on September 26th. And um, and POV are helping us to build education toolkits and screening guides so then it can be shown in communities in, in America and then we can use those same toolkits, bring them to the Philippines and, um, and continue this conversation beyond the film. So, look, again, to think that, you know, here we are and, and talking <laughs> to you and having these conversations, you know, a year ago, it just, it was just, it's just beyond my comprehension. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's uh, like it fills me with so much joy to hear all of those amazing developments because this film deserves to be seen by everyone, in my opinion. It's just so wonderful. Every person who's part of it clearly has played such an important role. And, um, Carl, I just want to say such a big thank you to you for pursuing this because we wouldn't be getting to witness this story without you bringing it to us in such a powerful way. So a big thank you to you and big congratulations on such an amazing film and all the subsequent work that you're doing right now as well. It's it's so inspiring. So um, I really hope that everyone listening, I know they're going to be dying to see it now. It's called Delicado. It's uh, written, produced and directed by yourself, Carl Malakunas. Thank you so much, Carl, for your really generous insights today. It's just been a real pleasure. Uh, it's um, yeah, been a, a very uh, important conversation. Thank you, Amy. I really, really, really appreciate that, that the opportunity. I've just been speaking with Carl Malakunas and he is, as you heard, the filmmaker, journalist from Melbourne originally, uh, living now in Hong Kong and the film is called Delicado. As you heard, that was my pre-record with Carl Malakunas. Delicado has been nominated for a Walkley for Best Documentary. The winners will be announced next Thursday. And Delicado has also been shortlisted for Best Documentary at the IDA Documentary Awards. So that's really exciting news for the film, for the cause, and for these brilliant environmental defenders, the para-enforcers of the PNNI. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.